And I just had this moment of, do you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. I don't like that. I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I don't want that to happen to anyone else. This isn't right in the working world. Actually, I'm going to do something completely different. Hello and welcome to The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. So in this podcast, I'm talking to some of the tech world's most inspiring founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs to discover what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us all in our lives too. In this episode, I'm talking to Sam Smith, founder and CEO of FinCap, the largest AIM-listed corporate advisor and broker. Sam started down a typical path for a Bristol University economics graduate as a KPMG trainee, but quit the moment she qualified in pursuit of something riskier, co-creating a new division at private client broker, JM Finn. The gamble paid off and several years later, she masterminded a management buyout of the division, which led to the formation of FinCap. The rest really is history. Sam went on to become the first female chief executive of a city stockbroking firm. Among the anecdotes and insights in the episode, Sam reveals the moment a mentor nudged her into thinking much bigger about her ambitions for FinCap. A shift that I think we could all benefit from channeling. And for Sam, the rocket fuel that led to exponential growth of the business and an acceptance that her insatiable drive is just that, insatiable. Happily, she channels a good deal of that drive into giving others women and young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, the tools to unlock potential and the skills to succeed in business. Enjoy. What was your first entrepreneurial memory of growing up? So it wasn't that long ago where I thought, actually, there was that thing. And I basically, I think I was 17 or 18 and I went to stay with my grandparents who had a chain of bakeries and I took over this sort of sandwich round in an office block and you'd go and sort of set up and serve everything and then leave. And I just carried on that every day. And every day I'd sort of think about how do I improve it? How do I get more people there? How do I sort of change the prices? How can I make it look nicer? And suddenly I'd have cues out the door. And I saw this is quite fun. Went back home and it was only about two months later they said, do you realise like the takings from that two weeks when this lady was on holiday went up about three times? <laughs> and I didn't think anything about it at the time, but only when you start thinking, am I an entrepreneur? Because I'm not even sure I think I am. But if I am, where was that different way of thinking? And I think that maybe was an example of, do you think slightly differently? Because I'm not like an inventor or, a, you know, I haven't got that sort of brain. But what I have got, I think, is an ability to look at what do customers want? How do people want to be treated? How can you just do things incrementally better in a fairer way? And I think that is something I've probably always had. I just like happy positive environments and anything mm. I can do to create that works for me what sort of character were you at school do you recall so this is quite weird most of my <laughs> primary school I have almost no memory of until I was about 10 so that's a bit strange in itself but I think that's because I was very quiet I don't remember ever feeling like I particularly fitted in anywhere it was only later on at school when I was probably 15 that I started to enjoy it and I found subjects I liked and a friendship group that I liked and I got a bit more confident. But until then, I was probably someone in the background that no one would have noticed, never spoke, probably was feeling sick at the thought of anyone <laughs> asking a question. And I was painfully shy. But you can remember, I guess, the inflection point when you started to feel more confident in yourself. It was when I got into economics and you could mm. only study that 
at A-level. I was always okay at school, but not amazing, not awful. But then when I got to study economics, I just loved it. And there was something about it that I was really good at it, but I loved understanding about the world. And I see economics as the study of people. You know, it's how people's actions translate to how worlds come together, how markets work, what makes people tick and what motivates people and what drives behaviour It resonated with me. And that sort of set me off on a and I assume you path. took that through to uni and that was just a sort of natural evolution. Yeah, so I did economics at university. I did a yeah. little side of accounting and law with it, which was <laughs> a little bit of the business piece yeah. to it, which I was quite interested in. But then again, when I left university, I had no idea what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I just remember thinking, right, I really love to do two things, be a primary school teacher. And I think that was because my love of people, inspiring people, changing kids' lives, mm-hmm. which is probably why all the things I'm passionate about I'm still am you know either a primary school teacher or maybe I'll be an accountant and in my mind my only thinking and this is another thing which I think has been a driver for me constantly all the way through is what will make me be able to sustain my lifestyle on my own as a female for me it was I need to be able to support myself I want to not rely on a guy I want to be able to be self-sufficient and I thought becoming an accountant was some way I could always be a part-time FD I could be a mum and I could earn enough money to be self-sufficient and that's why I didn't go down the primary school teacher route and that was literally my only decision making you know process in deciding to go that route yeah so you did classic Big four, was it KPMG? Yes, KPMG, yeah. It's like this extension of university, isn't it? It was the first year, two years, you know, you're in study groups, not working for months on end. Yeah. And I made some amazing friends. One of them is, well, was my CFO, is now my COO. Yeah. It was absolutely brilliant fun. It was an extension of uni. I liked the numbers. Did I like mm. auditing? No. Did I want to get out of there the day I got my qualification? Yes. yes. Which is what I did. So talk me through leaving KPMG and was it a search process or did you stumble across something? I quite wanted to move within KPMG and I wanted to do transaction services or something different, corporate finance. And no one would move me. So you just got to stay in this audit thing until you've done your three years and then you move. And at that point, I got so frustrated. I started to look at roles knowing that I was gone. As soon as that three-year contract was there, I was leaving the next day. I would take another job. And most of my interviews were very classic you know, the next stage of accountancy. I'd gone to a headhunter, yeah, go to these interviews. You could either be a corporate financier or you could be a research analyst. Did lots of interviews, was on my rounds, getting offers, waiting for offers. And also at the same time, a very good friend of mine, and I think it was about 22 at the time, got breast cancer, very young, out of the blue. And I wanted to go and see her in hospital and I just couldn't get out of work because someone wouldn't let me. And at the same time, I was thinking, do I really want to do these jobs? And I just had this moment of, do you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. I don't like that. I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I don't want that to happen to anyone else. This isn't right in the working world. Actually, I'm going to do something completely different. And I rang my headhunter and I said, I don't want to do any of those jobs. 
I don't want to work for a big bank. Can you find me something else? And he was probably quite annoyed, but <laughs> he went out and Bohemian Band said, well, I've got this role and it's at JM Finn. And I'd never heard of JM Finn. It was a wealth manager at the time. Said they want to set up a little bit of a corporate finance function, but they're not really sure how. And why don't you go and meet this guy, John Finn? I think he just thought, this girl is a nightmare. We'll send her somewhere. <laughs> She's probably not going to like anything. Maybe yeah. I should have gone to be an entrepreneur there and then. But I went to meet John Finn. And we got on really well. And he probably had as much clue as I did about how you set up corporate <laughs> finance function. We both sat there and went, I think it's a good idea because he's got all this money under management and lots of Neds who yeah. want to set up businesses and are interested in things. So there's money and there's companies and we need to match them. And I just said, oh, that sounds quite fun. Yeah, let's do it. Everyone thought I was utterly crazy. They said it was yeah. the most risky thing. What are you doing? And all I could think was the only thing that's telling me is a risk is going to do something I'm going to hate, getting really annoyed, not being able to do what I want to do and think is right. That was the thing that started FinCap, you know, taking that role. And it was literally John Finn was on one side of the desk. He was dealing with his private clients. I had a desk, a phone, was me. That was it. Literally yeah. getting the books and starting to read about. So how are we going to float a company? <laughs> I'm 23. I don't know what I'm doing. And I seem to be setting up this corporate finance division. So not probably the normal route. Yeah, so qualified accountant. How long did it take to go, actually, yeah, we're doing this or we've got momentum, you know, we're, we're established? It was a very slow process, but gradually, you know, every few years we'd win more clients, we'd build more revenue. We didn't do any marketing, but we still were managing to grow. We'd recruit more people into my division. And actually, we've got something quite interesting here. What is it we're doing that's different? And it was only then that we started to think, right, how do we now go to the next stage? And then eight years in, we said, right, the next investment, what should we do? And the next thing was becoming what is called a nominated advisor on AIM. So you can be the broker, you can raise all the money, you can be a corporate financier, but to actually be the official nomad, you have to go to the exchange, get your application approved, hire four quite expensive people, go through an 18-month regulatory process. And we said, you know, actually, that is going to cost us half a million quid to do that. So that's when we approached JM Finn and said, look, we don't really want to invest all of our own bonus back into this because you're going to get all the benefit and it's like we're going to get paid nothing and there's going to yeah. be lots of equity value. So what about giving us some equity? And probably if they'd said have a few shares in JM Finn, I would have accepted that and carried on building it. But they actually said no, that they wouldn't give us any equity in the Topco. They were a wealth manager. They were growing as well. So they were probably now at this point, four or five billion under management, decent wow. sized wealth manager. Yeah. So it was absolutely point blank no. So we've had a couple of years of intense discussions about, look, what's the point of me doing this? We really want to do it, but mm. we need some equity and I need some equity for the team. So eventually we said, look, can we have a spin out? Can we buy out this business? You own part of it. We own part of it. You're not giving any equity away in your top co because that's your value. And actually brokers as part of wealth managers don't really add value at all. So I could see why they didn't do it. But two years later, eventually, long story short, they finally agreed. Yes, you can do this MBA. Yeah. They started off offering me a ridiculously small percentage for the whole team. And that eventually over two years got to 50-50. <laughs> so yeah. that was the right number. They had control with 50.01%, but we had the rest. And we agreed then, all right, okay, we're going. We're going to be a separate company. We'll be called FinCap. I'll be the CEO. And I thought the role wouldn't change. Head of a division to CEO, same thing. We'll raise this money from 
Yeah, half came from JM Finn, they backed it, half came from our team, recruited a few people, and then had seven months to put the whole thing together and launch. So that launch was on the 1st of August 2007, when we became FinCap. So what most people don't realise is actually the 10 years before FinCap launched... Yeah. It was actually a growing division where we'd done the hard yards, realised what our value add was, so we've done all the hard learnings once we got to the buyout. So when we did the buyout, we were capitalised from scratch. We put a million pounds in, half a million from the team, half a million from JM Finn. And we were 28 people. We had 28 clients. We had 3 million of revenue. Wow. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny breaker. Yeah. But what we did have was this absolute belief that there was a space in the market for something different and about that time would have been the first precipitation of the gfc wouldn't it yeah we launched on first of august 07 everyone had written their checks the night before it's all exciting we came in the next day everyone's an owner rather than an employee Employee. we're off to the races it's really exciting i'm thinking great amazing and we were opposite a northern rock and you'd look out the window and go, oh my God, Northern Rock's collapsed. There's a queue out the door. I've just bought out this small cap brokerage. I've sold the story and the vision to all the team. They've all put their money in. I've got Jam Finn to back it. It was a bit stressful because also I was 33. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. You know, I've become the CEO for the yeah. first time. You're sort of making up as you go along. It was a bit hairy, I would say. But what was amazing about that opportunity, and it was not what we had in our five-year plan at all, but what that opportunity presented was actually, what can we do now? Because everyone's exiting small cap. Everyone has to cut costs. This is all looking really horrible. Redundancies everywhere. Actually, if we believe there is a space for a small mid-cap broker who properly looks at service, is going to treat people better, as in the team, wants everyone to be an equity holder, really wants to create a different culture, this is the best possible time for us. So we just went on a mass recruitment drive with not a lot of cash in the bank, but we probably accelerated the business plan by two or three years at least because we were hiring people that we never, ever could have hired unless there was a crisis. Yeah. So in a weird way, crises is for us. I don't really mind them because I think they always have opportunities. They might not be great in lots of ways, but there's always an opportunity there. So weirdly, 07, did I want it at the time? No, it was absolutely horrendous. But did it give us the platform to grow, hire some people who brought clients? With three, four years after that, we were the number one broker on AIM. From being outside the top 20, no one had heard of us. They all thought we were a private client broker. Mm. It was quite a transformation. And you, going from a division head to CEO through crisis, what were you learning, I guess, as a CEO? How were you developing? And Were you conscious of it or was it just quite organic? Not really conscious of it. And my approach is I do what I think is right mm. and I utterly believe in my gut, but I just learn as much as I can along the way and push myself in areas where I don't mm. think I'm particularly good. But what I never thought is we would fail. Never, ever, ever, not one minute of one day at any point in everything going wrong. And it was, you know, pretty tricky time. Did I think this isn't going to work? Yeah. Which is quite weird from a girl at school wouldn't put your hand up and I have no confidence. But my self-belief was never in question. There was no chance that we were going to fail. It's like, that's not an option. I'm a massive optimist. So I always say my glass is sort of overflowing, let alone half full. And whatever crisis there is, I'll always think, right, where's the opportunity? I actually think change is healthy. 
it's always good to think about the status quo, challenge your thinking, not go with the norm. I think the world needs a lot of that to move forward and progress. Yeah. And I think steady state thinking, you know, group think is a really dangerous thing. And so 2007, 3 million of revenue and average market cap of 5 million. What did the business look like? At the end of 2017. So just for 2017, we got the business from 3 million turnover to about 25, 26. Wow. Okay. But where we got to is we probably have 5% market share of the small mid cap space. Yeah. And this was another interesting turning point because originally in 07, I would have said that we would have probably sold the business by then. Do it for five years. We'll get mm. to the next cycle. We'll sell it. Well, the next cycle didn't happen. So we carried on growing it. We've got to 5% market share. Can we get to 10? But is that exciting enough? And I think that's where we got to the turning points, crossroads with the management team at the time, because some probably would have sold then. Yeah. Just said, okay, I'm out. We built it from 3 million to 25 revenue. That's great. We've taken a lot of dividends out. It's a good brand. But the team that I'd hired and me in particular, you know, we wanted to do something with it. And weirdly, this is also just after I'd had a baby. So you'd think not the most normal time to suddenly mm. get your best energy, but actually it was. We said, look, what could we do with what we've created here what is the real secret source of this is it the client relationships and thinking differently or is it really how we treat people or is it a combination of all of that so I think that was the recognition that our culture is completely different to anywhere else so actually if we take that culture and apply that to other services what could we build I'm a great fan of mentors and coaches. I went on a trip and I met Anthony Jenkins, who was the ex-CEO of Barclays. So obviously a very successful guy. And I was chatting to him about what I was building. And he said to me, okay, what you're creating is very exciting. Get what you're saying. But where was your blocker? Where do you think you're going to grow this to? And in my head, I had a valuation of 50 million, which I'd never told anybody, but he'd obviously picked up on there was some blockage here. Yeah. When I set it up, when it was zero, my own view of success was I've grown something from naught to 50 million. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? And I said, well, 50 million, that was where I was aiming for. He said, but do you think you can grow it to bigger than 50 million? I said, well, Numis are already three times that size. So yes, of course, it might take me 10 years, 20 years. Said, that doesn't matter. Can you create something bigger? I said, yes, clearly I can. So he said, well, stop thinking about that number and start yeah. thinking about something bigger. End of the conversation. It was a lunch in the West End. I had to walk all the way back to the office in the city. I couldn't get on the tube, couldn't get in a cab. It's like, I just have to think about this, process it. And about an hour and a half later, whenever I got back to the city, I remember thinking, right, I've done it. I've cleared that. Get rid of that 50. It re-energised me to think, do you know what? We could do so much here. And as soon as you think bigger, things start happening. You recruit different people. You attract different things in. You see things through a lens which you didn't see the day before. So that was a real eye-opener. So then we said, right, what's the next big thing? Let's get to 10% market share of capital markets, but let's add other services. What can we do differently? How can we be a real full-service provider that is about utter integrity advice, utterly about the client? Then Cavendish came along. We had a call with Cavendish. I knew within one minute that I wanted to buy it. We hadn't bought anything for 20 years. I yeah. was very, very risk averse. 
worried about an acquisition and instantly that felt exactly right. It wasn't the easiest of acquisitions. We did an IPO at the same time, which we yeah. don't advise our clients to do. <laughs> and we did it in less than six months. So it was a very quick process from the final, right, we're doing this. Let's get on with it. Acquisition IPO to our D-Day. That was the start of thinking a bit bigger IPOing and now you know how we might add other services alongside that. Wow. We're buying Cavendish. We're not going to be a massive company, not much liquidity at first, but it could facilitate us growing to a really sizable business. Give me some currency yeah. and give me more than anything. I don't know how you find it. You know, it's every time you've got the next idea, and it's like, <laughs> well, hang on a sec, can't you sit still for five minutes and just let us just be what we are? But I don't want to do that. And the listing gives me justification that you have to grow. You're a growth yeah. company. We're about yeah. growth. So now no one says, why are you doing that? Why are you investing in a new team? Yeah. It's because, of, yeah, it's given you that license. So many hats. You know, you're the person you are. You're the director or the CEO. You're the main economic shareholder. And you're yeah, a family person as well. And you're trying to manage all those stakeholders. And it gets blurred and confusing as to what is your driver of decision-making. So if you've got the personal one, hold on, I'm tired, <laughs> slow down. I just want to grab my breath. But the investor in you says, well, why would you? You just crack on. And so by listing, you've created that delineation between those roles. No one questions it. Of course, we're driving shareholder value. And it's quite exciting. And mm. it was something, given I floated myself, like 100 businesses, when I've been the advisor and worked with you know, countless others, when you actually do it for yourself, there's that thought process where I didn't realise that would be such mm. a powerful thing, that that's the driver of it. It's quite interesting. So has that changed decision making and it must change your psychology a little bit? Not particularly. I mean, it feels very, very similar. So the process was, you know, it's a few months of hard work. But once that's done, you're basically running your business how you usually do. So I don't think it changes almost anything other than gives me more clarity to the team on a growth plan and yeah. driving people to have a growth plan and having a reason as to why I am going out thinking about the next thing. You know, people know it. There's a perception thing. There is a gravitas thing to being public. I think every single company that floats says it. It's never the main reason, but it always ends up being a very big positive that you just never thought about before as to the true benefits of being in the public eye. Effectively put two quite material businesses together to create a very material financial services business. It's got two cultures, which are by the nature different, albeit a nice crossover. You've acquired a firm of deal makers. You know, deal makers generally have strong views and opinions. But that must have been fascinating exercise to put the two businesses together. Yeah, well, we always say, and you see the execution risk in acquisitions <laughs> of any businesses, let alone acquisition within people businesses. And now I can see why that execution risk is absolutely real. Because you know, when we bought Cavendish, and it was nearly three years ago now, it was culturally very aligned in that everything was about the client. Absolutely integrity of advice, getting great prices for clients, overseas reach, really going above and beyond to get that client the outcome they want. Perfect. Let's all go and create something. Let's all be part of it. With a partnership, and this applies to, I think, lots of corporate finance businesses, M&A houses, maybe even PE they're owned by very few people. There are key decision makers. Not everyone shares in everything. And it yeah. doesn't feel that same culture. Whereas our culture is very much inclusion. 
everyone's part of this everyone's view is welcome doesn't mean we're going to execute all those ideas but you know let's have a platform where everyone feels part of something and grow it together so that second piece of the culture the collegiate feel you know not fighting for deals against each other that piece of the culture took a long time I would say two years But it was hard work. It was absolutely clear that we had to get there and it took a lot of effort, but we are absolutely there now. I would say that's aligned on culture across the whole business. And I'm not sure it would have worked if we hadn't got there. And again, we talked about liking crises and change. So did COVID wasn't too far after you bought Cavendish and floated that, that accelerate? change or was it good for the business I'm sure it was nervous nights as well I'm not sure liking it is quite (laughs) the right definition we didn't have a particularly strong balance sheet at the time when Covid hit it was a bad shock It was instant, asking people to take pay cuts for a short period of time. It was cutting all our discretionary spend. It was properly, you know, managing how do we sustain this business through what could be for felt like 18 months or two years of we might have no revenue. We might have no companies. All these small companies might go bust. If the funding isn't there, no one wants to pay for a broker. Everyone delists. The worst case of this is very, very bad. And it was unknown. And so that first three weeks of, oh, my God, I've got to get all the traders working from home. I also had a property. I had a 20,000 square foot brand new office, a shell, which I just signed, was supposed to be fitted out. We lost our fit out financing. So we had nowhere to go even from September, had to fit out this building, working just through the night every day, sorting it out. But I get quite a lot of clarity of thought when I'm in that mode. But it was only three weeks because what happened? was it turned into oh well money is there people hadn't extracted the money out of the market actually investors were willing to back things and then we ended the year with our best year ever having raised an awful lot of money for companies and I think for most CEOs that's why it's been so utterly exhausting because with COVID was this up down up down you never knew what was happening Some industries were accelerating, some needed rescuing. You had all the issues of working from home and staff's mental health. I've never known a period in 25 years when you're almost living on the edge every single day. I mean, it used to be I'd do all my work and I'd stop at five to five to listen to the press conference with my notebook. Yeah, right. But what what stuff's going to come out today? I mean, we were going to make some redundancies and then the furlough scheme got announced. It's like, right, quick, great. We don't have to do that. Let's do the furlough. Let's recut numbers. The pace of just how you had to think was nothing like I've ever experienced it's incredible how the sort of human psychology manages those scenarios isn't it i suppose it's survival isn't it do what i need to do and you sort of don't think too much about it everyone just reacted companies did pivot they did change they did get through and you think some people they just won't give up they will just find a way find an angle And that's what I think was so exciting about what happened through the crisis, the reaction of small, mid-sized businesses and how they came out the other side. I know it's something you admire, but it's that kind of grit and determination, isn't it? Yeah, utterly. And positive thinking that there's always a way through. I wouldn't want to do it again, I think, in my (laughs) lifetime. I don't think I've got too many COVID crises in me. One's enough. I know you're big on fairness, championing the underdog. You give a lot of yourself up to causes outside of your family and work. And I just wondered, is that the kind of primary teacher in you still trying to get out? Maybe. I mean, my big thing, you know, what's my real passion? What do I think, you know, in 
50 years time that I think right, I've really done something and it is to do with ambition you know seeing young people how can you maximize their ambition how do you make sure people that shouldn't be disadvantaged aren't disadvantaged yeah how can you light that fire in everybody so they're doing something they love so the UK is a success and I do firmly believe there is a success in everybody you just need to find it and people need help finding it I don't think there's you know much focus on that in the education system so everything I do is around young people it might be mentoring someone that I particularly gel with I think look you've just got something and I need to help you or it could be putting the um, entrepreneurship into primary schools which is what we started doing five years ago we're now putting into secondary schools we launched this side hustle in the summer which is a nationwide competition for 14 to 18 year olds with their side hustle or idea where we give them a prize and the idea of that is it's getting more schools that are disadvantaged to enter and think about ideas in that way so you're trying to promote social inclusion so anything to do with entrepreneurial thinking ambition people not being disadvantaged unfairly really hits a something with me that I feel compelled to do something about it it's almost I can't not I don't know why yeah (laughs) I just can't bear to see it. And that probably becomes, you know, to do with inclusion in the workplace where I don't understand why people just aren't recruited. Why do you want to not promote a woman just because they're female? I don't understand it at all. And the idea of it happening, I find very upsetting to the point I want to do something about it. It does sort of spur me into action. You obviously phenomenally successful and you'll naturally be held up as a beacon, I suppose. Is that something you're happy to carry? Well, it's weird you say that because I think I've only just got started. So when people say, oh, you're successful, I don't necessarily relate to that. I think I've built a small business. I think we've done it differently. But I feel like there's so much more to do. It's just the start of the journey of how can we change things? How can we really change workplace culture that it's not acceptable to do these things anymore? Why do you treat people Mm. like this? I want to do so many things that I think having a bigger business helps that. And I want to keep championing it. So I don't think I can do enough from my platform at the moment that I want to do. Do I hope I can in 10 years? Absolutely. Mm. But I would like to do whatever I can to make an impact in this area. It's almost like you're teaching entrepreneurial spirit to kids. There is very much about that. It's not saying, right, are we missing that entrepreneur that could be the next Steve Jobs and how do we do it? You know, if that's a byproduct, that's amazing. I think it's more importantly, entrepreneurship is a way of thinking, it's a way of working that is much more about life skills. And when we've put it into schools, what you generally find is you engage a child that wasn't necessarily doing so well in the classic education system. And that is the real game changer. And that's the, been the biggest impact from head teachers is actually, you know, they might have written someone off as you know, being lazy or they're just really disrupted in the class. They don't want to learn or they've got ADHD, you know, all these different reasons with the entrepreneurship piece of the course, mm. which is not specific learning. It's learning about concepts they are engaged so if you think about the modules it goes from what is profit why should you make a profit to team building to negotiation to market research how do you think about a market how would you go about launching something and some of the ideas that they're coming up with might just be how to make popcorn a bit better and sell it better 
but they're then thinking about marketing strategy. How do they go and find out who likes what, how to make it a bit better? It's that way of thinking that just generates ideas and thought and engages people that might not be academic to think they have got valuable skills. And I personally think those entrepreneurial skills and the way of thinking is up there with academics in being equivalent. So it's like equipping people, trying to empower people, thinking in a different way, being more work ready, but also to say to you know a group, actually, if you don't like the way it's done, if you feel like you don't fit in a box, if you're struggling, go and do it yourself. You know, that is entrepreneurship. And it's all full circle back to the sandwich round, if you think about it. So had you known what you were doing was entrepreneurial at the time? It's yeah. exactly that. I think if someone had actually said to me, do you know what you've done? Amazing. Actually, that thinking is a thing. And you did more of that thinking. You know, would I have carried on the same path? I don't know. Would I have done something different earlier? I don't know. But what I do know is not everybody who potentially had that skill set would have ended up doing what I've done. No. Because I did have opportunity. You know, my parents were middle class. They could send me to university. Yeah. So, you know, I was lucky in that way, but not everyone has that. And so what about the next 10 years? Normally you speak to PE back CEOs. And so there's always this five year window or roundabout. So our five year plan, and we do think in five years, because 10 years is a long way away <laughs> to translate that to most people. So our five year plan is very clear. It's in the public domain. We call it Project Premiership. We want to get to the top league of investment banks, but do it differently. And we want to get to 100 million pounds turnover and we want to move our share price in that direction. So that is our clear target. We want to be known in the space to be the best financial advisor to growth companies and to have done it differently. Where I think about after that, and probably my mind is mainly in the 10 years beyond, is what could I really create if I think about the way I really think business should be done? And how can I scale it? And if I really want to own the growth space in Britain which is what we want to do, what services could I add that are really wanted by growth companies that can help them scale, run by people who really believe in what they're doing? What brands could I bring in? What could I scale up with the same core belief of we do the right thing? We treat people properly and our clients are the most important thing and we have utter integrity. How could that change the game in the finance space and professional services by having a player that really actually means it in their DNA is doing the right thing? How big could I create that? Because professional services, consultants, large bulge bracket banks, they're multi-billion pound turnover businesses. So why can't I do that in the growth space? by just adding more services, getting very, very sector specialists, recruiting people that love what they do with the overarching theme of we are just a business that does it differently. Because I think lots of other people have good products, good ideas, good service, but direction of travel feels like there's still a lot of lip service paid to ESG, the way things are done. And I think that's going to come unstuck at some point and that's our biggest opportunity. It's kind of relentless drive. So in some ways you're an accidental CEO and now you've got this insatiable ambition to sort of grow and develop with 
possibly never an end to it because most people don't have that relentless decade on decade on decade ambition. I think I have come to an acceptance now, which is it's healthy for me that I probably won't ever want to stop driving something because that is, you know, rather than an end goal, it's just my way of being. And now I've mm. accepted that. I so I think that's just me now. Maybe I'm never going to get to that lying on a beach doing nothing stage. And I actually don't yeah. want to. I probably couldn't think of anything worse. Well, a few final questions there. Any tips for founders or entrepreneurs from your last 20 years? I think the belief in your own gut, I think is such an important one, particularly at the beginning as well. You know, when I didn't think of myself as the CEO, the, the entrepreneur, you do doubt yourself a lot. And I think it's more prone in women. I do think mm. that's the case. There's less confident, less role models around. So your core belief, your gut is what's going to make the company. And when I haven't listened to it, it has gone a bit wrong. What's the bit you enjoy most about being an entrepreneur? Even when I'm having a bad day and I think, oh my God, this is awful. Within a couple of days, I think this is the best job in the world. And it's the ability to change, impact things, watch people grow, motivate people, make a difference. And it's you. I consider Fincap my second child. I mean, it does feel very, very similar to... You know, my daughter growing up, it's the same sort of feeling of pride and yeah. achievement. It's that unqualified love, isn't it? I passionately love it. It's I yeah. love everyone in it. I love all the... You know, if there is something very personal and it's an emotional connection to a corporate, which is very strange, but that's why mm. I think founders and entrepreneurs just make such good additions to businesses because they live and breathe it. Mm. And not yeah. many other people do. And is there anyone that's particularly inspired you throughout your career? Lots of people, almost all entrepreneurs, I learn something from. So I don't have one standout where I think, oh, my God, that is, you know, want to be that. I just take as much as I can from the biggest group of entrepreneurs. But I would say there are some, it's almost more historical when I think, my God, that utterly inspires me. It's people like Eleanor Roosevelt. I use one of her quotes all the time, but it's 70 years ago. She was championing for women's rights. You know, all the things, if you read some of her stuff she was doing 70 years ago, it's what we talk about today, but she was on her own doing that Mm. as the wife of a president that probably 70 years ago should have been doing the dinner parties in most people's minds, but she was championing change. Like people like that, in my mind, are phenomenal. How they did it, I don't know, but thank God they did. And is there a favourite book that you turn to or would recommend? So this is, I do read only probably on holiday. When I'm not on holiday, all I read is business books. So it is a bit dull. But the one that probably resonates most, if you haven't read it, read it, is Grit by Angela Duckworth, which is about this concept of what is the common link between all people who are successful in life, whether it's actors, actresses, sports people, business people, people in the army, And it's this grit, which is a combination of passion and resilience. And how could you potentially help people to have it rather than it be natural? And it's an amazing, amazing book. I could read it again and again. Sam, thank you. It's been an utter pleasure to speak to you. It's so refreshing to see a really inspiring founder with such entrepreneurial instincts in a leader of a listed financial services firm. Sam has an innate yet humble belief in herself and her team, a natural ability to relate to changing customer needs, pioneering change in a traditional industry, and opening the doors to a new generation of talent that wouldn't have been able to access entrepreneurship before. And all this while saddled with imposter syndrome. 
I can really see how Sam's formative years have influenced her journey and success. From the primary school influences of her mother to an appreciation of economics being the study of human behaviour. Sam's thirst for getting the most out of herself and others, coupled with her appreciation of leading a business that has the potential to make an impact on the lives of others, is truly inspiring. She leads a business with a heart and soul and loves it, and her team, unconditionally. It's infectious and makes you, at least me, want to follow. If you've enjoyed listening to that conversation and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode, and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or on Instagram. Bye for now.